In the United States political system, what goes around comes around. Good point, Justice Kavanaugh. Let's bring it back around. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's one reason. I got the feeling that something right. It certainly is not. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me. Jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. Yes, I'm stuck in the From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM People Powered Radio in LA. Also 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, 93.7 in San Diego, 99.5 in Ridgecrest and China Lake. Also in California in Red Bluff and Redding on KFOI, Round Mountains KKRN and Eureka's KGOE. In Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ, Cottage Grove's KSO, and Eugene's KEPW. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. In Columbus, Ohio on WGRN, Palinville, New York's WLPP. In Grand Rapids on WPRR, New Orleans, WHIV. In Gallup, New Mexico on KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN. In Fayetteville, Arkansas on KPSQ. In Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin's WADR. And Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950 KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe. On the internets, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com. Radio Free Brooklyn, uh, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I am Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. Um, It has been just over one year now since Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh was sworn in for his lifetime appointment onto the Republicans' stolen Supreme Court, the highest court in the land. Despite multiple credible allegations of sexual assault, some of it violent, by Kavanaugh during his high school and college years, And one Supreme Court reporter who has covered the court for nearly 20 years still does so, but she now refuses to go back to the court itself since Kavanaugh has been sworn in. Slate's Dahlia Lithwick will be with us uh, here shortly to explain why and why the institutional efforts of everyone else, it seems, to simply get over it is uh, frankly damn dangerous for this country, at least as I see it. We'll see if she agrees. Uh, I'll, I'll also ask her about uh, the big ruling on Monday by a federal co- uh, court of appeals in New York confirming that Donald Trump's accounting firm, Mazars USA, must indeed hand over eight years of Trump tax returns and other financial documents to state prosecutors in New York looking into his hush money payments to porn stars, before the 2016 election, a case which uh, is almost certainly headed for Trump's stolen Supreme Court, uh, along with a similar ruling by a federal appeals court in D.C. recently that found, yes, 
as well, Mazars must, in fact, hand over similar tax records from uh, Donald Trump to Congress, which has subpoenaed them. But will uh, John Roberts' stolen court save the day for Donald Trump? We'll ask Dahlia. We'll ask Desi Doyen. Will well, Willie? Will, will they? Uh, your, your opinion? I, you know, sadly, yeah. sadly, yeah. I cannot say. Yeah. I cannot I say whether or not the Supreme Court of the United States will uphold the rule of law this, as we all understand This should it. be a no-brainer. But now, uh, I mean, everything is just out the window, given the way that Donald Trump has uh, packed not just the federal courts, but the way Republicans have stolen the Supreme Court. All right. Also, we are now officially... Uh, maybe good news here. Maybe we are now officially less than less than one year from the presidential election in 2020. Yes, uh, things are moving so quickly these days in the uh, in the Trump era. Time takes both forever and moves incredibly quickly all at the same time. I've never understood how that's possible. And yet it is. But it is. Yeah. Um it's, it's uh, the election next year falls on November 3rd. If you'd like to jot that down, we may need your help that day and in the many months leading up to it, especially given some of the new polling about Trump's chances of winning re-election, which you may or may not be happy to know. I ain't got time for today, but I may try to hit later this week. Uh, it's also Election Day on Tuesday this week in a number of states, which I will get to in a moment. But as I have been getting quite a few tweets to the Brad blog and emails to bradcast at bradblog.com since Sunday night as to whether I saw John Oliver's latest um, last week tonight on HBO. Let me let me hit that right away here on uh, another very busy day. Uh, Jacqueline on Twitter, who uh, goes actually there by Dream in Rhyme. I like that name. Says, uh, hey, the Brad blog. Not sure if you saw this, but yesterday's last week tonight with John Oliver was about voting machines. Election security is something you're passionate about and something we don't talk about enough in this country. Love your show, says Jacqueline. Well, thank you very much. Love your tweet. Uh, yeah, I saw it, and I was very happy to see it. Uh, and I will try to remember to link to it tonight when I post today's show at bradblog.com if you have not seen it. Uh, you can see it online for free. It was, of course, very welcome, even if it was... Kind of like watching, I don't know, a 10-minute summary of the last 15-plus years of uh, of my life and of uh, bradblog.com. Yeah, inevitably there are going to be some things that are either missing or not exactly the way it was portrayed. Well, he, he covered a lot of the stories that we had uh, broken over the years. He even pulled some video that I'm fairly certain is only available these days at bradblog.com. That would be the devastating 2007 Dan Rather piece on the trouble with touchscreens. Um, and that uh, infamous section about how the quality insurance tests at the sweatshops in the Philippines, where most of the touchscreen voting systems that proliferated the country over the past uh, decade or two now, um, that uh, the quality uh, assurance tests included literally nothing more than shaking the machine to see if there were any screws loose inside. I remember when we covered that back in 2007 <laughs> and how mind-blowing it was. You can, still see, you can still see that full video at bradblog.com. Anyway, here's part of the, uh, of the piece where John Oliver describes how elections officials either lie 
or just don't understand the threat to voting and tabulation and voter registration systems from the Internet. To be clear, you don't you don't have to actually have hands on contact with a voting machine to hack it. If it's connected to the Internet, you can get into it from anywhere, although on that front, many election officials insist you have absolutely nothing to worry about. Our machines are not connected to the Internet and they're not going to be connected to the Internet. No state is on the Internet. I find it difficult to hack something that's not on the Internet. Our voting systems are never connected to the Internet. For a guy so sure that his voting systems are not connected to the Internet, watch what happens when a reporter asks a very basic follow-up. Are the Harris County voting machines connected to the Internet? Never. So is it ever connected to a modem? Nope. Well, the, no, I say that. It is a secure modem where we dial uh, to an old-fashioned uh, landline to the uh, one of our four drop-off sites. But that's the Internet, Stan! <laughs> you literally just described the Internet! It's like he said, I've never eaten a banana split. Only for the reporter to ask, then what are you eating right now, Stan? Why, it's just bananas and ice cream topped with fudge. I call it a fruity phantasm, but why? <laughs> so, some machines that officials insist don't connect to the internet actually do connect to the internet, and even some machines that don't connect directly to the internet are programmed with cards that have themselves been programmed on computers that connect to the internet. So your voting machine isn't connected to the internet the same way your Alexa isn't recording everything you say <laughs> and sending it directly to Jeff Bezos. It's totally not doing that, except for when it's totally sometimes doing that. <laughs> okay, so, yes, John Oliver is mostly right on uh, on the money there uh even if the problem is far worse than he actually had time to explain in the hbo segment uh but it was fun to hear uh, last week tonight sound a hell of a lot like the broadcast frankly uh in any event uh for how much worse it actually is i would refer you back to my conversation with wired's kim zetter just a few months back in which she detailed how Data researchers had recently found, like within just the past few weeks and months, uh, they had actually found tabulators and election management computers just sitting there on the Internet for years in a bunch of swing states like Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. And uh, in many cases, the state election uh, officials had absolutely no clue that their systems were actually on the net 24-7 after they had been installed that way by the private vendors who install these voting systems and have taken over our, our, our electoral system basically all over the country. Uh, and here's a, another part of the piece from John Oliver's Last Week Tonight where Oliver was explaining how necessary paper ballots are rather than the computerized touchscreens which are still in use all across the country and there are more of those systems coming to more jurisdictions in 2020, incredibly enough. Here's John Oliver. 16 million Americans spread out across all these states are set to be voting on machines that pretty much everyone agrees are deeply, deeply flawed. And if they malfunction, there could be no way of knowing, which is absolutely terrifying. Because what we have to do here is obvious. It's so obvious, in fact, even this guy understands it. One of the things we're learning is it's always good. It's old fashioned, but it's always good to have a paper backup system of voting. It's called paper, not 
highly complex computers, paper. And a lot of states are doing that. Yeah. <laughs> He's right. That's it. He's just all the way completely right. It is called paper. Paper is not a computer. It's paper. And a lot of states are doing it. Now, I'm sure everything he said around those 16 seconds was some combination of wrong, racist and horny, but for a brief, glorious moment, he was just absolutely right and probably slightly horny. Okay, well, yes, he was almost right, Donald Trump was in that clip. Close to right. We don't need backup paper or whatever he called it. Uh, we actually need actual paper ballots. Nothing backup about them. Yeah, they're ballots. They're not backup ballots. They're, no, they're the ballots. actual paper ballots. Uh, what uh, Oliver and Trump failed to highlight is that we don't just need paper ballots. We need hand-marked paper ballots since the election industry, with the help of Democrats, sadly, have pretty much changed the definition of paper ballots to... Uh, the things that touchscreen computers print out after a voter has used one of them to select who they wish to vote for. Those printed uh, voting ballot summaries are now being misleadingly labeled as paper ballots, even though it is 100% impossible to know, as we've been telling you for many, many years, impossible to know if any of those computer-marked, not hand-marked, ballots actually reflect the intent of any voter after an election. So I was happy to see John Oliver cover the issue uh, and focus on the old school direct recording electronic or DRE touchscreens as he did. I was a little bit disappointed to see that he did not mention the new 100% unverifiable touchscreen computer ballot marking devices or BMDs that are now replacing those DREs and replacing hand-marked paper ballots in some places. But uh, in short, if you were asked uh, to ask me what I thought about Oliver's piece, as many of you had have, I, I would say it was fantastic if this were 2009. Unfortunately, it's 2019, and his piece did little to make clear how the new 100% unverifiable touchscreen devices replacing DREs in many states and even hand-marked paper ballots. Even here in Los Angeles County, the nation's most populous voting district, how that is making things worse, not better, before 2020. So uh, I give him points for trying. I enjoyed the piece. I hope you will watch it. It's about 10 years too late, but we will take what we can get especially as things continue to get worse before 2020. But uh, I guess that's what you have the Bradcast for. Thanks to those of you who support our work at bradblog.com slash donate. And speaking of elections before 2020, it is Election Day on Tuesday. Let's take a quick break, and I'll come back with a summary of that on the Bradcast before Dahlia Lithwick joins us a little bit later. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't go away. <laughs> Hey, this is Brad. The Bradcast survives thanks to you and your support. Please stop by bradblog.com slash donate today to help us continue to do over your public airwaves what we try to do five days a week. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thank you. Blue moon of Kentucky, keep on shining. Mm -hmm. Shine on. Welcome the back. 
It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. Yes, there are elections coming up in uh, Kentucky. Well, happening right now. Uh, But that's not the only place. Speaking of elections, this week on Tuesday, Virginia is electing state legislators with a potential majority for Democrats now in the balance in the House of Delegates following court-ordered redistricting to previously racially gerrymandered legislative districts in the great Commonwealth of Virginia. Democrats taking over the majority will be very important for the new legislative maps to be drawn after uh, next year's 2020 census, as we discussed on our previous broadcast. We also discussed the elections in Texas, where there are 10 constitutional amendments on the ballot. And as we noted, the state has made it more difficult for voters to vote there, particularly young student voters who are going to have to fight like hell to vote this year and in next year's critical presidential elections. Mississippi is also electing a governor, an attorney general, and state legislators on Tuesday. Kentucky is electing its governor and secretary of state with current very unpopular but very Trumpy governor Matt Bevin facing off for re-election against Andy Bashir, the state's attorney general and son of the former governor Steve Bashir. Uh, despite Bevin's lack of popularity, the polls show him right now neck and neck with Bashir. There's not a lot of polls, but the latest shows them even in uh, what many people think could be a very close contest and a potential win for the Democrat and what would certainly be seen as a bellwether victory for Democrats in the South in advance of the presidential election next year. However, uh, not to be the bearer of bad news here, but uh, we covered way back in uh, 2015 on this program that year, the uh, the year that Bevin, Governor Bevin, the Republican, was first elected uh, for the first time. Back then, most pre-election polls actually showed the Democratic candidate, then Attorney General Jack Conway, defeating Bevin by anywhere from three to five points. That after the Tea Party Republican Bevin had humiliated himself by attempting to primary Mitch McConnell and getting crushed by like 25 points. But despite being three to five points behind Conway that year in 2015 before Election Day, Bevin somehow went on to trounce Conway by almost nine points, at least according to the reported results that year on systems that nobody bothered, as usual, to verify as being accurate. Uh, even in places where they did have hand-marked paper ballots in Kentucky. And, of course, as we noted at the time, much of the state back when uh, when they voted uh, in 2015, much of the vote, many of the voters had to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen DRE systems, the type that John Oliver was complaining about in that previous segment. And guess what? Four years later. Many of those voters are once again going to be voting on those very same touchscreen DRE systems. So despite the fact that Bevin is wildly unpopular in Kentucky and uh, he and Bashir now are said to be neck and neck in the pre-election polling this year, that's actually better than the polling that uh, Bevin had back in uh, in 2015. And on Monday, Donald Trump was heading to Kentucky to try and shore things up for Bevin in advance of Election Day, according to The New York Times today. 
President Trump's push to rescue a trio of GOP gubernatorial candidates in red states escalated on Monday as he headed to Kentucky to campaign for Governor Matt Bevin, a test of the president's ability to drag one of the nation's most unpopular governors across the finish line. Though all three Republicans vying for governor in Kentucky and Mississippi and Louisiana have closely allied themselves with the president, none has adopted the brash Trumpian tactics as adeptly as Bevin, whose abrasive demeanor has led to high-profile clashes with teachers' unions, the media, and state legislators from his own party. But Republicans are hoping that uh, Donald Trump down there again will drag Bevin across the finish line. And uh, as I note, it just might because he's actually doing better, even though he's uh, neck and neck with the Democrat here. He's actually doing better than he was back in 2015 when he ended up winning by nine points. So uh, we will see if Democrats can pull off what I would see, frankly, from my experience on this beat as somewhat of a miracle, particularly given the current state of play in Kentucky right now. And yes, those 100 percent unverifiable voting systems that sure can help in a pinch, can't they? Luckily, we're all getting even more of them next year. The uh, latest Mason-Dixon poll in Kentucky out on October 16 showed Bevin and Bashir dead even at 46 percent each. We will obviously be watching that closely in the days ahead. But now we're uh, looking back a year or so in order to, yes, look ahead to the future of this country when it comes to our stolen Supreme Court, on that, we are joined by Dahlia Lithwick of Slate. Next on the Bradcast, I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. At the Bradcast, we do our best to bring you accurate news and analysis on the issues that actually matter. And we do it all independently, without corporate or political influence. But we can't do it without you, now more than ever. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Welcome back. It's the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from Bradblog.com. Well, it has been almost two and a half years now since Justice Neil Gorsuch was sworn in as an associate Supreme Court justice after Mitch McConnell and the Republicans in Congress spent nearly a full year defying constitutional norms by refusing to meet with, much less allow an up or down vote on, Merrick Garland, President Obama's nominee to fill the seat left vacant after the death of Antonin Scalia in early 2016. And with that, the stolen Republican majority on the court has both soldiered on and doubled down with the addition of Trump's second nominee, 
accused sex assaulter Brett Kavanaugh after Republicans muscled him through the closest vote in the history of the court in the U.S. Senate following several credible allegations of sexual assault, which Kavanaugh vigorously denied and or obfuscated during riveting public testimony in the U.S. Senate Judiciary Committee just over one year ago. This whole two-week effort has been a calculated and orchestrated political hit fueled with apparent pent-up anger about President Trump and the 2016 election, fear that has been unfairly stoked about my judicial record, revenge on behalf of the Clintons, and millions of dollars in money from outside left-wing opposition groups. This is a circus. I will not be intimidated into withdrawing from this process. My family and my name have been totally and permanently destroyed. This confirmation process has become a national disgrace. And as we all know, in the United States political system of the early 2000s, what goes around comes around. Well, that sure sounds like a threat to me. He went on to promise that his detractors would, quote, reap the whirlwind of daring to question his past, despite credible evidence of multiple instances of sexual assault in high school and college by the now sitting Supreme Court justice. Uh, As to his name having been totally and permanently destroyed, really? Well, he went on to win that up or down Senate vote for his lifetime position on the highest court in the land. I wish someone would destroy my name that totally and permanently. Writing last week at Slate, legal journalist Dahlia Lithwick explained that she listened from the back of that Senate hearing room on the day that one of Kavanaugh's accusers, Christine Blasey Ford, and then Judge Kavanaugh himself each faced the Senate Judiciary Committee to tell irreconcilable versions of what happened in the summer of 1982. The morning, she says, was spent, as I'd anticipated, all of us, the press corps, the country, listening, some clearly in agony to Ford's account. And then Kavanaugh came in and started screaming. The enduring memory a year later, she writes, is that my 15-year-old son texted, he was watching it in school, to ask if I was, quote, perfectly safe in the Senate chamber. He was afraid for the judge's mental health and my physical health. I had to patiently explain that I was in no physical danger of any kind, that there were dozens of people in the room and that I was at the very back with a phalanx of reporters. My son's visceral fears don't really matter in one sense, she writes, beyond the fact that I was forced to explain to him that the man shouting about conspiracies and pledging revenge on his detractors would sit on the court for many decades, and in that one sense, none of us, as women, were ever going to be perfectly safe again. Kavanaugh, she writes, is now installed for a lifetime at the highest court in the land, Ford, is still unable to resume her life or work for fear of death threats. And the only thing the hearings resolved conclusively is that Senate Republicans could not be bothered to figure out what happened that summer of 1982 or in the summers and jobs and weekends that followed. In the years plus since, 
Dahlia writes, I have given many speeches in rooms full of women who still have no idea what actually happened in that hearing room that day or why a parody of an FBI investigation was allowed to substitute for fact-finding or why Debbie Ramirez, another accuser, and her Yale classmates were never even taken seriously and why three books so far and two more books to come are doing the work of fact-finding that government that the government could not be bothered to undertake. She says, women I meet every week assure me that they are never going to feel perfectly safe again, which makes my son somewhat prescient. Two of the nine sitting justices, she notes, have credibly been accused of sexual impropriety against women. The other, of course, being longtime Justice Clarence Thomas, who, by the way, has also been credibly accused of lying about hundreds of thousands of dollars that he and his wife received from from uh, right wing activist funders over many years as he actually sat as a Supreme Court justice, deciding cases that many of those right wing outlets directly advocated for or against. Both of those men, Thomas and Kavanaugh, writes Lithwick, will be deciding fundamental questions about women's liberty and autonomy, having both vowed to get even for what they were, quote, put through when we tried to assess whether they were worthy of the privilege and honor of a seat on the highest court in the country. As a, as a Supreme Court reporter, she writes, I am also expected to afford the new justice generosity and solicitude. As a journalist, she says, I am finding that hard to do. She notes that while many of her colleagues have tried to resume life as normal in covering the court, along with the justices themselves, including the Democratic appointees who have a professional stake in going along to get along with Kavanaugh and Thomas, after nearly 20 years of attendance at Supreme Court hearings and oral arguments, Dahlia Lithwick explains in her piece at Slate that she has not been back to the court since Kavanaugh was sworn in as an associate justice in the fall of 2018, even as she still covers the court and the law for Slate, where she also hosts their amicus podcast. Dahlia Lithwick joins us now on the broadcast to explain why. Dahlia, it has been years since we have spoken on air, so welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me back, Brad. I uh, I got a lot to ask you about regarding uh, regarding your uh, piece at Slate, of course, because I think you raise a lot of important points in your uh, personal uh, boycott, if you will, from showing up at the court. But since you're here on a day with a pretty important ruling uh, by a three court uh, three judge federal appeals court in uh, in New York, I want to get your uh, your thoughts on this. This uh, court found in favor of uh, Manhattan D.A. Cyrus Vance against Donald Trump that he can, in fact, obtain. Trump's personal tax and other financial records, as well as those from his uh, from Trump's company for the past eight eight years as part of a New York state investigation into Trump's hush money payoffs to two separate women before the 2016 election. Dahlia, that ruling follows on another ruling, I think, by the federal court of appeals in D.C., which also agreed that congressional investigators may also get access to those same tax records held by Mazars. Uh, both cases are now almost certain to be appealed to the uh, stolen U.S. Supreme Court. And while I know it's folly to predict how Republicans on that Trump-packed court might rule on anything, got any predictions on how they might rule in that case, in those both of those cases? No, I mean, it's, it's, 
it's the, I think, most urgent question of the day, and I think it probably, I would say, is the first of what I think is just going to be a pileup of, you know, the law of Trump mm-hmm. cases that are going to start to make their way to the court. There's going to be a, a whole bunch of litigation, as you know, about witnesses who are refusing to comply with congressional subpoenas mm-hmm. and who are refusing to testify. So it seems to me that I don't know that John Roberts wants to stake the court's reputation on upholding Donald Trump's right to claim that he can withhold a third party, the tax preparers, right. uh, documents under this theory of privilege that is so capacious that it was laughed out of the lower court. So I do think, you know, you're quite right to say, I think that there are five Republican justices on the Supreme Court who are going to be predisposed to try to find for this administration in some cases. But do they really want to go to the mat on this one, uh, which is essentially blessing a notion that the president not only uh, it has uh, a, a privilege not to be uh, criminally charged, but can't even be investigated during his presidency. I mean, that is beyond the scope of any privilege claim we've ever heard. Mm-hmm. And not only that, but he's saying that that privilege somehow attaches to a third-party tax preparer. So this is this is kind of privilege on stilts, on uh-huh. skates. And it's hard to imagine that the U.S. Supreme Court wants to bless that when there are things that are legitimately interesting constitutional questions coming down the pike. I know. And it is. It's hard hard to imagine in any other era you would say, well, this is a no brainer. Obviously, they are either going to not take this case or find against the president because it's such a frankly ridiculous case that goes against U.S. v. Nixon in, in several places. But. This court, Dahlia, we don't know anymore what to think from this court, I think. Well, you know, I take one huge sign from um, the end of last term. As you recall, Mm -hmm. John Roberts probably flipped his vote in that citizenship case. Uh, where they were going to put on the census, the 2020 census, mm-hmm. Wilbur Ross was forging ahead to put a citizenship question on that would have had no effect, no practical effect other than depressing minority voting. And as we now well know, I think it's been pretty reported out by Joan Biskupic and others, mm-hmm. John Roberts went from endorsing that view that the president could do that uh, to flipping and voting with the liberals uh, against that at the very, very end of the term. Why? Because it became manifest uh, just the sausage making, the ugliness of how mm-hmm. that question got onto the onto the radar of Wilbur Ross and the, the degree to which lying, just flat out lying uh, by the administration, had ferried that along through the process. And I think John Roberts is absolutely true, and I would not mince words about this, is a movement Republican, is a Federalist Society, long-time, you know, Reagan Republican. Mm -hmm. The question is, does he want to cover when Donald Trump does things that are stupid or pretextual or unethical or embarrassing? And I took that flip in the census case when he just couldn't pull the trigger (laughs) on blessing something that was just mortifyingly badly done as a pretty good signifier that when the rubber hits the road, he will take a lot, a lot of heat for this president. But will he go down for 
bad Trumpist claims, I don't think he will. I hope you're right. I do have some uh, concern, and, and I guess we'll see before long, uh, that he may decide to split the baby by saying yes to the state prosecutors and no to Congress or even vice versa, so that, you know, he can be seen as being reasonable somehow. Uh, I, I, I think that's possible, but don't forget that means that we get to see the text. I mean, I think that that's true. you know, what, what, whatever lever he uses to try to look as though he's splitting the baby, uh-huh. I think that if the end game is to get those tax uh, returns into the public record, then we take it as a win. I don't disagree with you, by the way, that I think that there is so much to come. Don't forget, John Roberts is also going to be sitting on a Senate impeachment trial. He will be overseeing that. Mm -hmm. And the biggest term of, I think, my career is about to come down the pike. So John Roberts has sort of things detonating all around him this term. And I think he has to pick and choose carefully where he wants to uh, really take a bullet for this president. Uh, speaking of the minefield in the days ahead, I, uh, I find your piece at Slate actually very important and sort of above and beyond why you personally have decided to not go back to the court uh, after you know covering them for 20 years. Uh, but, but for the even more cogent point, I think, that you make about the importance of not, quote, getting over it and the dangers of what you describe as routinization and normalization of all of this. Uh, let's call it, you know, by institutional D.C., from the court itself to Congress to other members of the media who also cover the same beat that you do, Dahlia, uh, who have all sort of an institutional incentive to do exactly that, to get over it. So before we get to the larger picture of why I think it's important that you uh, haven't gotten over it, because, by the way, neither have I. So thank you. Uh <laughs> On a, on a personal level, what, what is keeping you, what has kept you from returning to the court since Kavanaugh was sworn in? You know, it was interesting when you were reading my words in the intro. I was feeling the gut punch of it again. It's always strange to have someone else uh, reading your copy back to you. And it, it did remind me of that really profoundly visceral sense just sitting in the chamber and, you know, Judge Kavanaugh was shouting, he was slamming his binder around. Mm -hmm. I was mindful throughout much of his testimony that my, as I said, my son had texted and was actually physically (laughs) nervous about Mm -hmm. my well-being. I think all of that had a little bit of a version of the effect on me that um, you know, all these women that I've described who've said to me over the course of the year, that was personally traumatizing, that witnessing that, the gaslighting, Lindsey Graham screaming, you know, Susan Collins, just completely contemptible mm. dismissal of Blasey Ford's allegations. I think that for a lot of women in the same way that Anita Hill, the generation before, was just profoundly, profoundly painful and traumatic, I think a lot of women feel very unsettled, and I don't want to suggest it's just women. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're saying the same thing. But I think that it was so unresolved and so sloppily and angrily resolved that there's just a lot of people for whom the, okay, turn the page, it's over, move on, there's nothing to be done, and now it's the court and it's magic again. All of that sort of locution of the court is oracular and perfect because this is over just didn't work this time. Mm. 
I, and you know, I had I did have some uh, reservations about playing some of that audio from uh, from Kavanaugh. I I didn't want to. In one sense, I was concerned about you know triggering a lot of what a lot of us felt a year or so ago. And then on the other hand, I thought, you know what? It has all. If I don't, it all disappears. It all goes away uh, with everything going on in, in in Trump world and everything else. It kind of goes away. I mean, we, you know, we frequently speak with with your great colleague at Slate, Mark Joseph Stern, on this show, uh, who we love frequently about Supreme Court cases and the arguments and rulings. And, and, you know, whenever I discuss the court with him or really with anybody, I try to make the point at least that we are dealing with a stolen majority on the Supreme Court because it is shocking how quickly the rest of the media have simply moved on from or normalized, as you put it, from, you know, that unprecedented theft of the highest court in the land. And then, of course, from these remarkable events of just over a year ago with with Brett Kavanaugh, even Democrats out on the 2020 stump do not seem to bring this up very often unless they're pushed to do so. And I understand why there's an institutional pull for the other justices to try to make nice with Kavanaugh. Uh, they have, you know, no control over all of this, and, and they hope he will join them in various decisions. But why are the media so disinclined to call out how abnormal this is? And why are even Democrats so reticent to do the same? Well, it's a it's a great question. It's probably the question, and it was the thing that was at the heart of what I was trying to think through in my piece. Mm-hmm. And I think I have two answers. One is I think just by definition, the Supreme Court press corps is one of the most, and I say this with huge admiration and respect, I think there is no better press corps in the country, but I do think it is just a very small C conservative press corps and very much an institutionalist preserving press corps. And I think that, um, right or wrong, there's a very, very deep tendency in this press corps to kind of shift along and, you know, make the best of things and to portray the court in exactly the lens that the court wants to be portrayed, which is oracular and above politics and um, somehow magical and, and different from the other branches. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but I do think that that has been a trend, and I think maybe the best example I can give you of that is that every single time I've sat through a confirmation hearing for any justice on the court, the Supreme Court reporters are not often in the room. The people in the room are the political reporters, Mm. because the Supreme Court reporters don't want to see how the sausage is made. That's not our beat. Our beat is the Constitution. Mm. So I do think that there is some sense of you know, we circle the wagons and we preserve uh, the norms that suggest that the court is somehow different. But I think that there is this really deep question, which is when we write about the Supreme Court, we are also right or wrong writing for the justices. And you know this as well as I do, that for years and years, we would write those Anthony Kennedy, you know, the greatest man in the world, preserver of gay rights, um, Obergefell pieces, because we knew that the justices are suggestible. And so I think there is this very, very pernicious way in which 
we sometimes conform what we write, and all journalists do this, but I think that at the Supreme Court, I think you're well aware of the fact that the best thing we can do is make nice with Brett Kavanaugh, welcome him back into the D.C. fold. Last year, he spent, I think I said this in the piece, really was careful to be under the radar, didn't give a lot of public speeches, didn't do a lot of big flamboyant touchdown dances. This year, you know, keynoting at the Federalist Society um, convention. This year, you know, a huge Justice Department award was given to the team that shepherded him through. I think there's a sense at the court that they paid their, you know, paid their one-year dues to sort of stay under the radar. The public was generally pretty horrified by the Kavanaugh hearings. And there's a feeling that, you know, the snooze button is now, uh, you know, stopped ringing and we can resume business as normal. And I think there's a powerful incentive for reporters to do the same thing that the justices have to do, which is try to pick off that fifth vote and to try to say, okay, bygones be bygones, you know, his vote is in play. Let's make sure to flatter and cajole and welcome him back in the event that that fifth vote could somehow help, uh, you know, modulate the court. And Mm -hmm. I think that that incentive is really powerful. I certainly wrote my fair share of Anthony Kennedy is the greatest, best-looking, handsomest, smartest (laughs) justice in the world pieces. So I know that's what we do, and I also know that it works. But I think that, and I in the piece say, this is part of the problem with unchecked power, is that the incentive to do that is not unlike the feeling that, you know, if I don't make him mad, maybe he won't take it out on me. And I Mm. think that's just unbelievably dangerous position to be in. Which you actually compare to uh, uh, the way an an abused woman might act towards her abuser, which is interesting in the case of uh, in the case of Kavanaugh. The, the sort of the larger problem, as you write, and this is what really grabbed me, and it's and it's the problem that I see as well, is that we as a nation, we tend to make this mistake over and over again, Dahlia Lithwick. Some, you know, gut-wrenching, unprecedented thing happens. The Supreme Court stops the counting of votes in the state of Florida thanks to a phony riot of, you know, fake Republican operatives outside a counting room in Florida. That hands the presidency to George W. Bush. Uh, even though subsequent analysis find out that Al Gore actually won that election, but we all move on as if nothing ever happened, or that same president, George Bush, blatantly lies us into a war that killed hundreds of thousands over weapons of mass destruction that they knew were never there, and then he goes on to violate decades of international and federal law against torture and war crimes. He lies about it all, and we just go on as if nothing happened. That's not only a bad thing, But it seems to me that there is very real long-term prices and consequences that we end up paying here for all of that getting over it. I mean, I would argue that had we not gotten over it, had Barack Obama decided uh, not decided, oh, I want to look forward, not back, but actually held the Bush administration accountable, we would probably not be looking at a Donald Trump today. Am, Am I am I wrong in taking your argument out that far that because we sort of move on and normalize all of this, that uh, things just get worse and worse because we have okayed what has come before? I I think you're not wrong. And I think, you know, I'm thinking of the Adam Driver movie about the torture report, um, which really, I think, distills, 
in a crystalline way what you've just described, which is what happened when Barack Obama made the decision that we just are not going to relitigate mm-hmm. uh, the CIA torture program. And this sort of very aspirational notion that if we can all forgive and forget, we all get to meet in the middle and work toward better outcomes. And it's kind of Lucy in the football. It never works out to meeting in the middle and working toward better outcomes. It just turns out that, yet again, ground has been seeded. And as you said, I think at the very beginning, so much of what we once believed I even naively believed were hard and fast rules, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> a Supreme Court justice dies, the sitting president gets to seat his replacement. Those are just norms. And almost everything that we live in right now in this moment is a question of, you know, we today are seeing the president saying, no, you can't, you know, through a lawsuit, get access to my to my uh, documents, because that's what impeachment for on the very same day that he's not allowing members of the White House to testify in, impeachment in his impeachment. Hearing. Right. So, I mean, I just think we need to understand and we're really bad at this, right? Like the heart wants what it wants and the heart <laughs> wants normal. And so I think that we keep believing that this erosion, this slow this systemic erosion of norms is somehow normal. You know, that this is just, yeah. I guess it was, I thought it was a law. It's not a law. I thought it was a rule. It's not a rule. This was an agreement, right? Blue slips and in the Senate, uh, you know, in order to, to put judges in federal um, seats for life, that is gone now. You know, that all of the the apparatus of, you know, uh, I'm sure you've talked to Mark about this a lot, but we didn't Mm -hmm. used to seat 37-year-old bloggers who've never set foot in a courtroom (laughs) as federal judges for life, and now we do, and there's no law. It's just a norm, and I think that what you're articulating and what I was trying to get at at the piece, but I think you've pulled it through maybe better than I did, is that constantly acceding to this and saying, well, this is what it Mm -hmm. is now, that there are costs. There's huge, huge costs to democracy. It, it feels like when we accept it, that we uh, that act in and of, in and of itself lowers the bar, and you know makes it uh, yeah not just you know 37 year old bloggers. Nothing against bloggers, by the way, but um, you know the idea that <clears throat> people who would have should have gone to jail you know, are now actually serving on uh, the in the Trump administration or serving on the federal courts. We just continue to lower the bar. Uh, Dahlia, is there anything you have? I, I, I see your decision to not go to the Supreme Court uh, now as sort of a, a personal boycott of sorts. But I think that's important. Uh, what can we do? Do you see anything that we can do as citizens to sort of unnormalize this to remind people that this is not normal is there anything that we can do or do we just have to make our own personal boycotts and you know move on as we're told i'm really glad you asked that i want to just say that the letters that scared me the most that um since i wrote that piece last week have been uh, from the con law professors, people who are saying, I can't teach constitutional law post-Kavanaugh. I can no longer mm. tell the story of this 
you know, perfect oracular court that is making something called constitutional law. That scares me because yeah. I can continue to cover the court, reading transcripts. I don't have to be in the room. I will keep doing my job. But I think if you have constitutional law mm -hmm. professors who are sidelining themselves mm -hmm. and that gap is being filled by people who think, oh, no, this is still constitutional law, even though the machine that puts justices up is broken, that scares me. And so I think the thing that I would really say is it's very easy for me to say I will not be in that room. I will not write the words Justice Kavanaugh asked a probing question. It's really different from those of us in the media, for people listening, for people around the country who are alarmed and feel that the sand is like spilling out from under their feet. Mm. I think that I would start where we started, which is last year, the U.S. Supreme Court had almost every single case on the docket this year on their conference list last January. All the big ticket cases, Brad, that's DACA, mm -hmm. that's the abortion case, that's the Title VII, LGBTQ protections under Title VII. All of those cases, they held them over until this year. Why? Because they were terrified, because they're very aware mm. of public opinion and public disapprobation. They knew what the Kavanaugh hearings did to the public regard for the court. And that is, I think, partly why John Roberts flipped his vote in the census case. So our scrutiny, our unwavering, unflinching, I'm not over it scrutiny mm -hmm. does make a difference. And that's my answer. Those cases now are all on the docket for this term. Nothing has changed in my view. Nothing should change in the public opinion view. And we need to hold the court to the same kind of unflinching, we're watching you, we care. And that it seems like soft power. I understand it's not, you know, optimal, but mm -hmm. I think that the court responds. What they really want is for us to put this on page A27 and get over it. Right. And that's our choice. And, and you know, the other thing that uh, Democrats uh, have to sort of be forced to even discuss that might help in this regard is the idea of expanding the court to unpack the GOP's currently packed court, as I see it. But that is also like sometimes pulling teeth to get them to discuss that on the campaign trail. I would argue that for the reasons you explain, the court should be expanded or they should look into it. They should talk about it. Uh, it should be a topic every day, if only to put the current court on notice. You know, the court you described going through all of these important uh, cases this year that, you know, they're on notice. This can be undone. It can be uh, changed so that they don't have that uh, lifelong uh, uh, majority that they're asking for. Uh, do you believe that court should be expanded to undo the damage that's been inflicted on it by the Republicans' theft of the institution? I think the best way to think about it, and I think it's Sheldon Whitehouse, Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who's been saying this, is that the court was already packed when Mitch McConnell stole a seat right. from Barack Obama. Correct. And not to think of it as, you know, Democrats are floating this for the first time. This was done, mm -hmm. and we missed it. We blinked. We failed to come out and vote over it. We failed to organize around it in 2016. And it's been done, and now we have to cure it. And I completely agree with you. I think Mark Stern and I have written this ten times each, that the failure to talk about this in the debates, the failure to center this as the issue going into the election. And here's where I add the CODA 
one quarter of the federal appeals courts at this moment, three years into the Trump presidency, is it our Trump nominees. I mean, he has absolutely, we're not just talking about nine justices on the Supreme Court. We're talking about the most strategic, systematic takeover of the federal bench that any president has ever effectuated, and that is happening day by day right under our noses, and those judges are also going to sit for decades. So it's not just the Supreme Court. It's thinking really, really strategically and tactically now about how to take back courts that were functionally simply broken by Mitch McConnell doing away with every single check every counter-majoritarian check that used to exist in the Senate, many of which we've, I think, already said were norms and not rules. Mm -hmm. What do you do to, to, to rectify that? Because you can win the executive branch, you can win the House again. If you've lost the judges for generations, none of this is going to matter. You're absolutely right, and uh, I hate to close on such a dark note, but it it needs to be, uh, you know, we need to remind folks about that. Uh, Dahlia Lithwick, I promise not to normalize this. If you continue to uh, promise the same, uh, you conclude your piece at Slate with the headline, Why Haven't I Gone Back to SCOTUS Since Kavanaugh, uh, with the words, Sometimes I tell myself that my new beat is justice as opposed to the Supreme Court, and my new beat now seems to make it impossible to cover the old one. Well, you are covering the old one as it needs to be covered. I wish more uh, folks in the media were, were doing it just that way. I know you've got a podcast you now host yourself with Slate called Amicus. Can you uh, tell us uh, briefly, see what I did there? Can you tell us briefly what <laughs> Amicus uh, is about and how folks can tune into it? It's about exactly what you just laid out. It's about the rule of law and the courts and the law and uh, the court term at the Supreme Court, but also trying to just understand simple things about how impeachment works, uh, how privilege works, how uh, the system that's unrolling in front of us works, and we've got amazing, amazing legal guests, and uh, it's actually pretty fun and accessible. So it means a lot to me that you uh, that you heard what I was saying in that piece, so thank you. Yeah, well, thank you for writing it. Thanks for all you do, and uh, thanks for allowing us so many years of not talking and uh, joining us again <laughs> on the show. Uh, we'll probably bother you again soon. I hope you don't mind. Dahlia Lithwick, you can find her at Slate.com, where you can also listen to her Amicus uh, podcast, and you can uh, find her and harass her all you like on the Twitters at Dahlia Lithwick. Dahlia, really great uh, speaking with you again. Hope we get to do it soon in the future. Thanks for having me, Brad. You bet. Okay, we got to get out. Yes, we do. Thank you very much to our producer, Desi Doyen. Much appreciated. And of course, to Slate's Dahlia Lithwick and to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. If you missed any portion of today's program, you can download it anytime for free at bradblog.com where we hope you will uh, share it with the whole wide world. And you can do that via Facebook and Twitters, where you will find me at the Brad Blog. You can also drop me email if you like anytime. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And as ever, my thanks to those of you who allow us to keep this program commercial-free by stopping by bradblog.com slash donate. That is it. Until we meet again tomorrow, I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.